Shrinkwrap Radio number 805, Bill Connect LCSW on What Works in Therapy. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Shrinkwrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is licensed clinical social worker Bill Connect, who is the author of the 2022 book, The Accidental Therapist sharing over a half-century of experience and insights to facilitate positive outcomes. The book is an outgrowth of his unique combination of clinical, supervisory, and management skills and experience. He has served as a therapist for over 50 years in a variety of medical, physical rehabilitation, and mental health settings. Now, here's the interview. Bill Connect, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Right, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, we're going to be discussing your 2022 book, The Accidental Therapist, sharing over a half century of experience and insights to facilitate positive outcomes. That's quite a promising title. Uh, <laughs> you're going to have to deliver big time <laughs> with right. a title like that. Okay. Uh, and um, but before we get into the book, let's talk a bit about your background. Uh, where where did you grow up? Tell us about maybe your your family situation. Did you grow up in a family of psychiatrists or what? And uh, no, uh, you know your schooling and so on. Let's go there. All right, I I uh, was born in New Hampshire. Grew up in a middle class family. My father was a high school teacher, and my mother was a nurse. Sometimes I describe myself as an ACON. What is that? That means an adult child of a nurse. And all oh, of that okay. <laughs> uh, For example, my mother used to make us have cod liver oil in the morning. And she my had- My grandmother this, did that with me, yeah, uh, cod liver oil. hard red rubber thing hanging in the bathroom to make sure we were regular. Oh, wow. Yes. I grew up in that era <laughs> as well. I'm familiar with these uh, torture- practices um and we shared before we uh before i turned on the the recording here that uh, i also spent two years in new hampshire um at the time we had two young children and my wife and our two young kids and a dog that we brought from all the way from california Um, we had just a wonderful time there it felt like being in early america um those early American values are still so strong and alive in the, 
in, in New Hampshire. At least they were when I was there, which was... You know, remember their motto is live free or die. Yeah. I actually kept a number of license plates and I have them oh. up in my garage <laughs> just because I was so tickled by that, right. by that motto. Yeah. Um, then we, uh, when I was about seven or eight, we moved to Massachusetts. And uh, so that whole atmosphere... Later on, I went to the University of Massachusetts to get my bachelor's degree. Uh-huh. And what did you major in there? Well, initially, I majored in philosophy. Okay, yeah. I thought I was going to be a philosopher. It took me, like, I was pretty of a slow learner, so it took me two and a half years to figure out I wasn't going to get a job as a philosopher. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I only if you got a PhD and became a professor. That's, yeah, right. That was... So anyway... Uh, but I was not very goal oriented. I, back then, I, I got along. I did a lot of reading when I was a kid. So I got by and passed, you know, didn't really do much studying or whatever, kind of get by just from my reading of history and philosophy. And I even did the same thing at, at UMass. I, I really was not goal oriented at all. And the psychology that I switched to, I was just interested in people and so forth. But my thought uh, as an undergraduate was that I would, most of my study was related to human resource kinds of stuff. So uh, I remember carrying around that book, it's called Human Engineering. It was about how to design the chair so it would be psychologically, you know, comfortable for somebody. That was, that was the kind of uh, psychology that I thought I was going to. Yeah, so you were saying that you were not, a terribly motivated student. Right. Uh, uh, it seems like you had more of a penchant for following your own your own passion and reading what you wanted to read and so on. Exactly. And, and uh, well, back then again, this was this was in the early sixties. Uh huh. So my thought was, you know, uh, if I get a college degree, you know, I'll no problem. I'll I'll be able to get a job anywhere. Yeah. So I graduated, applied for several jobs, and didn't get any. Uh-oh. <laughs> so so uh, I, I went to work as a, as a bank teller. Okay. So, yeah. uh, but then, of course, this was 1965. I got my draft notice. Oh, so boy. This was during the Vietnam conflict. Yeah. So, uh I didn't want to go in the jungle or in a tent or whatever. My father was in the army. So I, I said, well, I'll, I'll join the Navy instead. So back then, if you, if you, if you joined versus being drafted, you could take a six month hiatus before you joined. Uh -huh. the caveat was that you had to spend four years rather than the two. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I went in the Navy in April of 1966. And uh, in your bio, you mentioned that you were actually uh, you were actually in the Vietnam in Vietnam, but on the ship. That's uh, yeah, for uh, for a year. Yeah. Well, of, again, of that, I call it I, that oxymoron called it's called military intelligence. 
<laughs> right. I love that. <laughs> which is, so when I graduated from Hospital Corman School, uh, which was my third choice, my first choice was photographer or, or a clerk, like the HR stuff. But anybody that, I worked hospital in the hospitals in the cafeteria and my mother got a job on, in summers. So they saw that word hospital and they saw the, you know, so they put me in hospital corpsman school. Little did I know, hospital corpsman in the Navy are the medics for the Marines. So uh -huh. they're the ones that are going, they're the most highly decorated single force in all the services because they're the medics for the Marines that are in the jungles and I'm, you know, doing the premier fighting. So uh, after Corman School, where they teach me how to treat a sucking chest wound, and put a tourniquet on and stuff like that, I was thrilled that they sent me to Navy Hospital in Philadelphia. Uh -huh. I wasn't going to go to Fleet Marine School and then, uh, then Vietnam. But again, military intelligence, they saw that word psychology and they put me on a 48-bed locked psychiatric unit with 80% with were acute schizophrenics and the other 20% were lifers who had uh, alcoholism. Well, you know, that's another place where our lives uh, intersect because I did my undergraduate work at, no, wait a second, I'm getting mixed up. I did my <laughs> under, <laughs> did you say Philadelphia is where they sent you? Oh, yeah, Philadelphia yeah. Naval Hospital. Okay, right. yeah. So I did my uh, undergraduate work at the University of Pennsylvania oh, okay. in, in, in Philadelphia. And then later in graduate school, I worked at VA hospitals. Oh, so that's okay. where I was getting a little, my wires were getting crossed in, in my brain because I was thinking, right. well, I, you know, I might have worked at the hospital you were at, but no, your hospital was in Philadelphia and I was later. Well, yeah. even after, I, I did after two and a half years in this, in this psych hospital in the Navy, uh, they did send me to Vietnam and I was a hospital ship there, but that was medical. So medical, uh, corpsman, that was not psychiatric. Yeah. So then how did you become a, so, uh, a licensed clinical social worker? Well, after the Navy, I went back to Philadelphia where I was very easily got a job because they were very familiar with Navy corpsman. So uh -huh. a friend of mine, another Navy corpsman, got me a job at one of the earliest community mental health centers in the country. Oh, wow. Called West Philadelphia Community Mental Health Consortium. And so that's, that's where they put me, a little, one of their satellite units in West Philadelphia. And, and that turned out to kind of set the pattern for for right. the rest of your professional career, right? Because you... That's yes, right. Because you my supervisor, back those days, the therapists were like BA levels, you know, psychology students, uh -huh. or mental health aides, uh -huh. or whatever the heck, even, even substance abuse recovering people. And the supervisor was an MSW. Okay? Yeah. So I, I looked at that picture and I said, well, maybe I ought to get my MSW too. So that's how I eventually went to Tulane and, and got my, and then from there I went back to New Hampshire where I worked in the mental health system. Yeah. So you, uh, you set up mental health centers, you supervised, 
mental health centers for the bulk of your career, and I guess also did some private practice. Right. I've always had, right? I've always even as a manager, I've I've always had a, a small private practice uh, of the specialties that I talk about, which is couples and sexual issues. Yeah. So uh, we should get into your uh, your book, The Accidental Therapist. Which, by the way, I discovered uh, the accidental therapist. That's a great title, and evidently, a whole host of other people also think that. Because I was looking for something about you on Google, and wow. I I was coming up with all. I think there was a a TV series called The Accidental Therapist, and uh, lots of people who had written books. There's a <laughs> novel with the same title too. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> So it's a good thing your book has a subtitle right? Exactly. <laughs> to, to clarify it. Yeah. And um, so one of the things that impressed me as I was going through your book is um, you have what I would call a very uh, down-to-earth brass tacks approach to That's therapy. Right. When you really said that, that, that was really pleasurable to me that you said that because that's my intention. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah, a, and, I tend to be a forest for the trees kind of guy rather than an academic person. Right, right. Uh, and uh, so Are most you, of my ex, most of my career, I've had to learn by doing. Right. And so anyway, that's. Uh, yeah, so, so, so your book really, time. really describes the, the kind of principles that stuck with you uh, and um, one could get the I don't know if they would get this impression from our conversation but from from a, a, a quick glance at the book they might get the idea well this guy you know he settled on short-term therapy behaviorally oriented short-term therapy and that's that but I was intrigued as I read on to discover that you got training in a whole lot of different schools of therapy and approaches to therapy. Maybe we can run through, run through that list for us a little bit. I want our listeners to appreciate that. Well, let's, uh, I would just say that, that I came to my, a lot of my thinking about being a therapist, it's an ongoing thing and it's still evolving even yeah. today at age 79. Uh, Anyway, so. So you're still doing therapy? Yeah, briefly, like one day a week. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that sounds appropriate. My goal now is not to, you know, generate a lot of money or clients or whatever. My goal now is to give back. I've been a teacher and supervisor of therapists for like 40 years. Yeah. And so actually, I wrote this book 10 years ago when I was supervising therapists and I told you I told in the book I, I'm not a writer and I believe in Occam's razor and this book of 50 years is only a hundred pages and I actually wrote this book for other therapists that I was training in less than one page. In less than one page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then you expanded so, it. Is it a counseling? <laughs> yeah exactly. So COVID helped me you know sit back what, what am I gonna do? Oh. Well I might as well put down on paper, you know, what I've been talking to people about for, for yeah. many years. 
Yeah, yeah, and uh, and and he that really succeeded at doing that. Um, so let's talk, let's get into some of the the major uh, headings here in your book. You talk about the goals of therapy. So, and I hope you can remember some of what you wrote. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm already uh, I'm already on to something else at this point. But uh, well, again, I have the evolution of my process of being a therapist started out, you know, uh, in the, in the psychiatric hospital with intensely, uh, seriously disturbed people. And my supervisors were psychiatrists who had been trained in analytic work. Right. But, uh, even this weekend, I, I, so they were coming from some theory or whatever, but they couldn't treat, like do psychoanalysis with a with an acutely schizophrenic guy that was hallucinating and throwing uh, bed chairs against the wall. Yeah, they had to had to incorporate medicine with what they were doing. They had to incorporate the milieu therapy, which was the you know the structure to you know to help provide some structure for the clients. So uh, that was my initial experience and how I learned, you know, well, what works or what doesn't work with clients. You know, also, I'm, I'm struck by the thought that I, uh, that I had meant to express and then lost my thought was uh, I can really see the, the influence of the Navy, I think, in your work, that naval experience. Well, the military of, yeah, of, of like, uh, is different than other yeah. Yeah, very oriented to or, uh, towards go- the goals, you know, and what works, and and let's skip a lot of theorizing and so on. And yeah. so when you say, "Well, I wrote my book as a one-page thing," <laughs> you know, that to me smacks of naval or or big business, you know, where the CEO says, right. "I don't don't give me a proposal that's more than a page." This is the mission. Yeah, this yeah. is the mission, and this is easy how to, you know, exactly. That actually, as a manager, they didn't teach me how to be a manager in school. Uh, yeah. actually, actually, later on, I taught a course uh, for master's degree students and how to be a leader and a manager. Yeah, I've been that most of my most of my career. Right. But yeah, you have, you know. So and um, so, what would you? What would you say are the goals of therapy? Well, again, uh, it's got to be one of my main concerns is is what I'm calling, uh, I guess, the de-evolution of, I mean, I was trained by psychoanalysts. Then I, you know, did some reading and discovered psychodynamic therapy and so forth and so on. And then uh, I, I... I learned at UMass even before I graduated about Truax and Kharkov's work with what makes a good therapist. It's accurate empathy. It's, you know, genuineness, positive regard, non-judgmental warmth, you know, which we've already talked about. You might still have. And <laughs> I hope <laughs> so it, it made me think about uh, those kinds of issues. And, and even Scott uh, Miller's work recently comes back around to saying, you know, what does the client want? What are the client's goals? 
what do they want? Do they want to calm down or whatever? And then after they calm down, then what? So we have to be attuned to what the client wants at the center, you know. But also philosophically, uh, I became, uh, in my philosophy work, I became, and as it overlapped with human behavior, I became a behaviorist. And I studied Joel Wolpe's work and stuff like that. In fact, uh, that's also why I moved in that goal direction to change patterns of behavior, change habits, and so forth to help the clients get to a better place. Yeah, yeah. So, so you, your work evolves to be a short-term goal-oriented approach to therapy. Well, some of that was related to what I would call them the medical industrial complex, which which you know requires if you're doing insurance, managed care yeah. came in in the '80s, and they said, "Well, by the way, we're not going to pay for." seeing treatment forever out of the psychoanalytic approach or whatever the heck, you're only allowed 20 visits. So as the manager, I had to, I brought in Simon Budman, if you know him, he's I the don't. one who wrote the first book out of, out of Boston on short-term therapy. Okay. So I brought him in to teach my therapists how to do short-term therapy. So it, it fit and evolved in that kind of a way. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I think I read in the book that the average length of treatment was maybe about six sessions, and uh, that's right. And, I, and by the way, what I tell clients is it's rare that I'm going to see you more than four, four or five. So that's uh -huh. fit exactly with the model that I'm using, kind of experientially. I didn't read any books about it until. Yeah, so so you really you set the client's expectations. Uh, very clearly, right, right at well, the when outset. That, when, when somebody gets referred to me or whatever, or they call me, I have a, you know, I said this in the book, I have a, a five minute interview with them on the phone. And one of the key questions I have, what do you want to get out of? What, what do you want the goal to be from seeing me? Yeah. If they say, well, I want to understand my inner child and, and I want, you know, why my wife was cheating on me and whatever the heck. I say, listen, I'm not going to be the guy for you. I don't think you may never understand why you did what you did or why you got into situation. But what I can help you to do is to, number one, calm you down in, to some extent and then figure out what we're going to do today tomorrow and next week to get you to a better place. Yeah. If you yeah, want help that's... with that, then I can help you with that. Not, I'm going to, I'm not going to therapize you, you know, so to speak. I'm not some guru, but I'm kind of like an educator. I'm going to help you and give you the tools so that you can help yourself. And in that way, I'm going to give you some homework. And I'm going to be a tough teacher. If the, you come back to me and you haven't done your homework, then what the heck are you paying me for? Okay. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm direct in that kind of a way. Yeah, yeah. It's a very brass tacks. And, uh, and as you point out, necessitated, I mean, maybe even more so in today's environment than it was in the 60s, where there's so much trauma and distress 
amongst us all <laughs> in our population. And, uh, and, and you also, you talk about cultural backgrounds, racial backgrounds, you go into all, yep. you say all of that has to be taken into account. And a lot of the people out there don't come from a background where they really want to talk to somebody endlessly for right. self-exploration. What yeah, they want right. to do is improve their well, situation. There's still some people that do that. Unfortunately, you know, uh, of course, lately, I, lately I've been doing uh, kind of networking with other therapists and beginning therapists and whatever. And uh, I'm taken aback by, by what I call a de-evolution because people still think that I've got to meet with somebody, you know, once a week for two years to help them with this trauma and whatever and understand talking about the past you know anyway so but i also come from the tradition if you read much about joe wolpe the original behavior therapist he hated cognitive behavioral therapy he said what are you doing sitting around talking about it isn't going to help you to change yourself so anyway that's my rant for today yeah. <laughs> uh, I was interested, too. You mentioned Truex and Kharkov, and that was another uh, connection point yeah. when I read that, because I taught out of their book, The Skilled Helper. I taught okay. a course on uh, called Introduction to Counseling for wow. years and years, yeah. both in California and at the University of New Hampshire. And, uh, and that was a major text in the introduction to counseling because, uh, you know, they argued so forcefully for these personal personality factors of the therapist. Exactly. And that, and emphasizing that the, that they were skills. That was a new idea. When I was in graduate school, nobody talked about skills. <laughs> we were steeped in a ton of therapy yeah. Uh, of theory, I mean, we were steeped right. in a ton of theory, and uh, hey, but what do I do? What do yeah. I do as I as I sit across from this person, yeah. and uh, and their approach, which was totally um, non-blaming, non-judgmental, was like, well, if you don't have these skills naturally, you can learn them, right? And we can, you know, and and research back that up by lots of other people that you can break it down to, if you will, micro skills that can be taught, that yeah. can be assessed, and that you can give a person feedback on how they're doing. Well, I'll get back in a second to the, to the issue of the therapists themselves, but yeah. because I think that's a key thing that a lot of schools are not ignoring. But anyway, I go back to, uh, it's almost in my book, uh, oh, my glasses on, but the study done in 1999 by uh, Hubble, Duncan, and Miller. And they talked about the factors that account for therapeutic relationship change. And they say, you know, uh, uh, client hope, techniques used, things outside the relationship, and therapeutic relationship itself. And you know what the biggest factor is? What? Things outside the relationship. You are, you're talking to somebody in one hour in a, in a meeting, but if, you know, if their wife, you know, yells at them the next day, that's going to, 
they're not going to be able to learn or apply whatever the heck you taught them in place. So again, that's the social work background helps look at the bigger picture. Yeah, the bigger picture. And I think you may have told an anecdote in the book, if I recall, of uh, somebody uh, coming in and saying they're a lot better and, uh, and, and that you inquired, maybe it wasn't you, maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. Uh, and it turned out it was something totally unrelated to, <laughs> to what you thought you were doing. As an That's why, you know, when I talk about my first session and how I begin a session, yeah. I, don't, I don't, I mean, I have something, I, like Scott Minow said, you know, some years ago, the best therapists prepare before the session and then they critique themselves after the session. That's how we continue to grow and evolve and yeah. personalize the therapy. Yeah. Um, so every session, I don't start with, okay, did you do your homework or whatever the heck. I start with, how are you today? Because on the way to the office, you know, they could have run over a cat. And yeah. so they're not going to pay attention to or listen to you know, the therapy part, because they're going to be preoccupied with something else. Yeah. They always start, you know, with where they are right now in this moment. I'm not going to say this is mindfulness or whatever the heck. I don't care what you call it. But uh, but I doubt I that you'd spend the whole session talking about the cat that they were in over. No, not, not usually. <laughs> because the first session is always... I teach them how to calm themselves down through diaphragmatic breathing and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're very practical. And I also have been very much influenced by Scott Miller's work. And, um, right. yeah. yeah. Uh, and another thing, I mean, there were just a lot of places where we match up in terms of our attitudes and, and past experiences. And you have a, a sec section where you kind of refer to what I would call the shamanic roots of this therapy business. What's that, that Shamanic, shamans, shaman. Ah, okay. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Which I, in, in that intro to counseling class, I would often stress that at the beginning, you know, our roots, uh, psychology has tried so hard to anchor itself in science and to present itself as a very scientific and everything is. Well, I've is seen that evolution. On, yeah, I've seen yeah. that evolution too. You know, yeah. I'm, that's like a self-consciousness, self-esteem thing, you know. Well, you know, we're just these touchy-feely kind of guys. We, you know, with just some science behind it. Yeah. Out of, out of that, you know, initially, look, the behaviorists were the one that first did it. But uh, I've also seen the evolution over time saying, well, I'm doing evidence-based therapy. Yes. I mean, it, that's nice to say, but, I, but as Scott Miller says, for over you know, 80 years, 80% 80 of all therapies work, regardless of your theoretical background or your, your techniques or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, versus placebo. So... Uh, Anyway, and going, going back to the sh shamanic thing, you know, yeah. you point out that people have been helping people from the beginning of time. Exactly. 
and uh, and some people have had roles that before therapy was invented. There yeah. were priests. Yeah. There were religious leaders. There was a wise person in the tribe, whatever. And uh, so I would always emphasize that, yes, we've got some roots in science, maybe, but we also have a long tradition, that, you know, based on this more human-to-human. -human. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing uh, that not a lot of people are talking about, but is but I think I say at some point, uh, clients may listen to what we say, but they take more out of how we are and how we're relating to them. Mm -hmm. It's a conversation we're having with another person. Yeah. And so if we're not centered ourselves or mature psychologically uh, or non-defensive, open to new ideas and learning, uh, non-critical and so forth, uh, but that, yeah, yeah, you can't teach that in school, right? Um, I, th I, th I, th it's funny. I, I'm sort of in the middle on that because I've just made the case that uh, a lot of this is trainable, but at the same and teachable. But at the same oh. time, I do have to believe that some people. It's like athletics. Some people are a born athlete, right? right. Yeah, and they're I, good. For, they're good from the get go, yeah. <laughs> and and they can grow and they can get uh, additional training from a coach right. but, and profit from that. But right. they start at a very high level, right. and it's, know, I'm sure it's the same for therapy. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know if you know uh, Stephen Pinker's work. Uh, he talked about the brain and the you know, uh, environment versus nature nurture kinds of stuff. And he, he pointed out a number of years ago that some personality traits people are in fact born with, like the openness, yeah, new ideas yeah. or whatever, or like what I say in the book, and, uh, you know, I was born with kind of an even tempered kind of thing. I, I'm an underreactor rather than an overreactor. Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. So somebody that's doing psychiatric emergency service in highly tense situations cannot be born with an overreactive kind of a brain. Yeah, they're not going to do well with that. Exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. And um, supervision, you've done a lot of it. And, uh, and you in the book, you emphasize that it's really important. You think that supervision should be an ongoing thing, even uh, for people who've been therapists for a long time. Absolutely. I, I about three years ago, I started a monthly uh, group. It's kind of a support group for clinical social workers and doesn't charge, don't charge any money. It's open-ended and a lot of good stuff is happening with it. In fact, you know, last, last sessions, you know, all this trauma that's going around us, violence and so forth, uh, you know, how will we react? To, what are some solutions to that in terms of especially taking care of ourselves? Yeah. So, uh, that's so, so what, what is your, uh, if you will, theory of supervision? Like if you, <laughs> when you were supervising people, what did you do? 
Well, the first, the first sent, I give them, I give them a handout of this is Bill's supervision. And the first sentence is, this is going to be a collaborative arrangement. Uh And it's going to be lifelong. What is it? Collaborative means this is going to be a dialogue between like therapy. It should be between you and I. And if you're Bill, I think you're full of of baloney or what what you're teaching me doesn't make any sense or whatever. I want some, I want some feedback from you about whether this is working or helpful or not. That's what I mean by collaborative. Yeah. And lifelong means you can see me one time and think that I'm full of baloney and want to end the relationship. But my commitment to you is after my two years of supervision of you that you have to pay me for in order to get your license, when it's ended, three years from now, you can still call me up and do career counseling or, or I got this case and I don't know what to do with it or whatever. So that's, that's the first sentence of my uh, format. for. Well, that's a real gift. You, you are pledging your support for life. Right. Yeah. That's I'm 79 now. So that might not be that long. (laughs) I mean, nobody ever said that to me as I think back, Uh, that's, uh, that's just an incredible gift to put out there. And did you use, um, did you go over tape recordings or video recordings or anything like that? No, or, no we, I do. Uh, as, as part of that, for, again, it's a one-page document about Bill's supervision. And uh, part of it is, you know, we check in with each other, what's going on right now, whatever the heck. But then on, under I say, okay, how you're to present the case to me. So I, I outline how you present a case. Uh-huh. And uh, back in the old days when we were in school, uh, I don't know about you, but we did process recordings. You ever hear of those? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. So, but yeah, but, but spell it out. I, well, process recording is, okay, tell me from the beginning. Well, it was a Tuesday. New client came in. Uh, I went out. They told me he's in the lobby. I went out to the lobby he looked like this, that, the other. I said, hello. And we walked back to the office, sat down. I said this, he said that, and whatever. So it's like what I say now, we don't really do that anymore. But I say, rewind the tape. Rewind the videotape of what exactly happened, what you did, what he said, or whatever. Why did you say that? And so that's, that's the process that I want them to get used to, to kind of not only examine what they did or why they did it, making sure they had some goals in mind, not just doing it. Uh, Yeah. And when you say rewind the videotape, you're not talking about an actual videotape, but rather rewinding. Although I was, I was trained, I was trained with uh, Salvador Mnuchin uh, family therapy, where they were actually, they had one way mirrors and yeah, sitting and watching the family therapy go on place, and they would stop it. You know, we don't really have that technology anymore. I don't know if you do, but uh, so that's why I use that analogous. Yeah, when I was teaching intro to counseling, fortunately, uh, we had uh, something like that on campus, and so I, I would do that. Right. Uh, 
and uh, and that's a pretty scary situation for uh, for for beginning, well, beginning counseling people. Yeah, you can imagine. You know, Salvador Manute, you know who he is, family yeah. therapist in, in Philadelphia as part of a, our system. But anyway, you know, he would actually interrupt the session and say, okay, I want Johnny to six, sit next to mom now. Yeah. And now, yeah. okay, now proceed. <laughs> to yeah. show the, the systemic dynamics of how right. to the family therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's an example of what I was saying in the beginning, is that you've actually had a lot of exposure to oh, yeah. other approaches, and that's just uh, that's a good example. Um, so, a lot of your work involves couples therapy. What what would you uh, say is your approach there? Because well, of you know the, the training with Mnuchin, certainly, and uh, well, that was more family therapy. Yeah. Well, I got my. Uh, the best training was from Richard Stewart, very underrated and an outstanding therapist, social worker who started, he actually was the guy that first designed Weight Watchers uh, eating program, you know, pick up the fork and only take one bite at a time kind of thing. Huh. But anyway, he was a early behavior therapist. He wrote Helping Couples Change, very detail oriented about how to do behavioral uh, couples work. Mm -hmm. We did premarital counseling. And so I, I learned mostly from him. Yeah. And it evolved over time. Uh, you know, I studied Gottman's work and so forth and picked up something from that. Uh, and then I had a professor at Tulane who was a family therapist. I learned something from her about, uh, about, uh, taking the personal history about when the couple first met and what, what, what it was about the other person that was made them decide, well, they are the one and then, and then utilize that and go from there. Uh -huh. And after that, it's all future oriented, not allowed to talk about the past. It's only about what are they going to do this week, next week? What are their goals for taking care of each other and teaching them how to talk to each other? Teaching them how to what? Talk to each other. Talk to each other. Okay. It's the active yeah. listening thing. I call yeah. it fighting, yeah. fighting fair. Yeah, yeah. Where the goal of the argument is not, or the goal of the discussion is not to win the argument. The goal is to fully understand the other person's perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and a lot of your work has been around sexual matters. Tell us about that. Well, it was, I don't know why, but that's probably another book about why I got into that in the first place. But, but anyway, I just, I had an interest in sexual. And so I, in grad school, I did an annotated bibliography of Masters and Johnson's book that had just come out. Uh -huh. And nobody was talking about those issues. Again, I grew up in puritanical New England, whatever, when nobody talked about sex to any extent. So I was interested and I was willing to talk about it. Yeah. So after a while, the therapists around me, you know, well, I got this case and they're bringing up sexual issues. I'm not comfortable talking about it. So they refer them to me. So uh -huh. for, from 
So from grad school in New Orleans in the early 70s, uh, I was doing that kind of work. And I believe you were also uh, doing work with uh, people who were uh, getting uh, gender change, yes, surgery, I, I and worked, so on. Yes, I, I started working at an early age, even in Philadelphia after the Navy. I had some clients that were uh, uh, transgender or being processed to, to be transgender. So, uh, and nobody else was talking to them. So, and I was non-judgmental enough to be able to talk to them about it. Yeah, yeah. And I did research about it, but there wasn't much then. So, so I put some of that work. Uh, I get referrals for people that, uh, you know, they want to get hormone replacement therapy. So they'll refer them to me for a psychological evaluation to see whether they are really are, you know, potential to be transgender or versus just being, you know, crazy or whatever the heck. So I've done that. Or, or maybe being, uh, I think one of the issues today is whether somebody is curious, you know, they yeah, talk right. about bi-curious right. Uh, right. and doesn't really go deeply enough that they have to mm -hmm. make a major shift. Yeah. Yeah. And other kinds of sexual issues too. I, I remember I was doing uh, teletherapy like 12 years ago uh, and and uh, so I got referrals from a, a group of attorneys that were suing uh, the parish priests who had allegedly uh, sexually abused the altar boys 30 years ago. And so they wanted me to evaluate. These, these people were adults now and they yeah. were like in out of state. So they, I did teletherapy evaluations to see if their story made sense from somebody that had been sexually abused or whether they were, again, you know, just telling a story to get some money or whatever. So I did that kind of work as well. Now, when you say teletherapy, was that on the telephone or was it? Right. Back yeah, then because, was Skype, because yeah. I don't think Zoom existed at that point. No, it was Skype back then. Yeah. And, and what about Zoom? Have you been during the... Yeah, uh, I've been doing that for You've been doing that? Yeah. yeah. In fact, I did, a, I did a workshop for therapists about eight years ago about the, the virtues of being able to do that. That was some in New Orleans after Katrina, for example, you're, if somebody was in therapy and then they had to move out of state, they lost their therapist. And so what, you know... Why would that have to be the case? I mean, you get into all kinds of baloney state where well, my license is only in Louisiana, so you can't do it if you're in Mississippi or yeah. craziness kinds of stuff. So I was when people found out that I was I was doing that kind of work, I was doing work for veteran for active duty military personnel in Afghanistan. I was doing marriage counselor for them via Skype. Wow. Yeah. 
So you've really, you've had such a full career, I have to say. And, and we didn't mention that you, in fact, are in New Orleans now, yeah, uh, not yeah. New Hampshire. You've been in New Orleans for some time. And so the... Let me, uh, let me, give, you a, a, give me a plug for a guy that I listened to this week. I don't know if you've heard of John Norcross. N not that I recall. I just took a half hour free. I'll send you the link. But anyway, he's done a lot of work He's a psychologist. Uh, he's done a lot of work on uh, integrated therapy, which from an academic perspective, I've been doing not knowing what I was doing. I'm taking from this theory, from this technique and whatever, and personalizing it to the client. He's yeah. actually done research and whatever. I think he would be a great guest for you. Because okay. uh, I'm... Uh, John Norcross. I'll send you his YouTube video. Okay. So you can okay. take a look at it. It's only half an hour, but okay. and he's talking to some uh, therapist guy in Australia about it. But it's about the same kind of thing that I'm somehow doing it, you know, without the academic background for it. Yeah, yeah. That's got to be uh, very uh, gratifying to discover that. And his example was like, you know, uh, like the one that I, I said, you know, there's a psychoanalytic uh, psychiatrist, trained psychiatrist, that's doing inpatient psychiatric work. You can't be one theory. You have to use multi theories and approaches to be able to, to uh, personalize the therapy. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think we've covered the stuff that I had hoped to cover with you. Okay. Uh, let me check in with you. How are we doing? Uh, have, have you been able to get out what you wanted to get out? And yeah, again, my, I mean, my, uh, my purpose again is to have discussions like this between other therapists, beginning therapists and so forth. To help them, you know, help clients. That's yeah. my goal. Yeah. Huh. Well, this uh, this interview will be available to people like that, and and certainly your books available to people. Uh, how where can people find your book? On Amazon. Just go to Accidental Therapist Bill Connect, and you'll find it. Okay, and we should mention the Connect is spelled. K-N-E-C-H-T. Correct. And I didn't know how to pronounce it. I contacted you. I'm pronouncing it three times a day. Connect the dots is what I say. Yeah, yeah. Was that a, a challenge in your career that uh, people didn't know how to pronounce uh, uh, Yeah, I'm used to it now. Though. Yeah. So, well, anyway, Bill, my message is make sure that you're client-centered, you're doing what the client wants you to do. And if they don't know, help them with that. And secondly, we have to take care of ourselves. And that's why I feel in the book, it's outlined the concept of vertical alignment that I do with all clients and all therapists. And that's part of taking care of yourself. 
Oh, vertical alignment. Yes, I remember that term in the book, vertical alignment. It's a process of, of setting your priorities, sitting down and thinking about what are your priorities, future-oriented, and then using simplistically a calendar, putting them on your calendar, reflective of your priorities, so you're conducting your life based on what your personal priorities are. Well, that's a, a whole nother book right there. Uh, and <laughs> maybe you'll, you'll write that book at some point. Uh, Bill Connect, I thank you for connecting with me today on Shrink Wrap Radio. Thank we'll you, Dave. I appreciate it. My recent guest, Bill Connect, is the author of the 2022 book, The Accidental Therapist, in which he distills his takeaways from roughly 50 years as a therapist, supervisor, and community mental health center founder and manager. Connect and I connected, no pun intended, at several levels. First of all, we are about the same age, and consequently, we both experienced the evolution of therapy approaches, especially in the 60s and 70s, which were periods of considerable innovation. We were both strongly influenced by the research of Truax and Kharkov and later Dennis T. Miller, all emphasizing a client-centered approach while discounting the role of theoretical orientation. For example, Connect writes, quote, Truax and Kharkov's research in the 1960s still rings true. In order to establish a good therapeutic relationship, we must exhibit accurate empathy, most important, genuine positive regard, being non-judgmental, genuineness, and being concrete and warm. We must also be consistently checking in with the client as to how they feel regarding this being a collaborative arrangement. Close quote. And although Connect has been living and practicing in New Orleans for many years, I was charmed by the traces of a New England accent lingering from his childhood and his early work years. It's an accent I fell in love with during the two years I taught at the University of New Hampshire as an exchange faculty member. Connect came by his accent honestly having been born in New Hampshire. There were other points of intersection between us as well. Personally, I could identify with his no-nonsense manner of focusing on what works. To me, that seemed to be driven by his New England heritage, as well as a four-year stint in the Navy during the Vietnam era. As a Navy medical corpsman, he had to learn to be quick on his feet and skilled at crisis intervention. For example, Connect writes, quote, being involved in crisis intervention work in the Navy and managing the psychiatric emergency team in the mental health center in New Hampshire, I had to very quickly assess clients, come up with a diagnosis, calm things down, and recommend treatment, sometimes in less than half an hour. Close quote. His preference for short-term work was also necessitated by the economics of community mental health and the insurance industry. Little wonder that he was drawn to the effectiveness and efficiencies of group therapy. About group work, he writes, quote, 
In my years of experience and observation, individual treatment is almost always less efficient and effective than group couples, or family interventions. Groups provide people with validation that they are not the only ones struggling with their issues, along with support and hearing feedback from peers. The group interactive process becomes the treatment. Also, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to treat couples and family issues without the rest of the folks in the same room. In my experience, the majority of clinicians are uncomfortable managing these more complex interactions and therefore don't practice them. Bill Connect comes across as an atheoretical guy, but I was surprised to discover actually he has training in a wide variety of theoretical systems. His final approach is an integrative one in which he's taken the best of what seems to work. Quote, Latching on to one theoretical approach and applying it to all clients is a mistake. It should eventually be your own, close quote. Connect's book is relatively short, under 100 pages, and very practical in its orientation. This makes sense because it grew out of his desire to create a training manual for supervisees. He expanded that manual, and it's very well written. Let me give you some more samples. About his history, he writes, quote, I was never goal-oriented through college, and even after, despite the lack of focus since 1967, I've worked in a myriad of psychiatric, mental health, and counseling settings. He goes on to share, quote, I always continued to carry a personal caseload, and over the years developed a style of brief, four or five sessions, Interventions for Adults Characterized by a Behavioral, Future-Oriented Collaborative Arrangement with Homework Between Sessions and Routine Feedback as to What Is or Is Not Working. I continue to be a Supervisor and Teacher of Psychotherapy and Management Leadership while also initiating systems for mentoring and supporting clinicians. Over the years, I've provided clinical services to the most severely disturbed and dysfunctional adults across the diagnostic spectrum, and now my practice is limited to couples and sexual issues for what I like to call the worried well, close quote. I particularly resonated with the following since it mirrors my own view. Quote, from the beginning of time, any person who felt physical or psychological distress sought out help from those in their tribe who were identified as having special knowledge and experience with healing. These shamans or medicine men or priests would apply herbs, potions, and rituals to drive out evil spirits. Those healers who had positive results gained status and reputation which resulted in more referrals. Psychotherapists will often get focused on their theoretical approach and techniques, forgetting that the goal is centered on healing outcomes. Close quote. Finally, Connect wraps it all up, saying, quote, My main point about all this is one should be practicing therapy based on a theoretical approach that fits with one's personal view of how the world works and that it should continuously evolve based on your own experience and the client's 
positive outcomes. Close quote. I enjoyed my chat with Bill Connect and am happy to recommend his book to you. Hello, Dr. Days. It's Claire Edwards from the Sunshine Coast of Queensland, Australia here. I work as a facilitator and coach specializing in neuroleadership and positive psychology. Dr. Days and your Shrink Wrap Radio form an integral part of my continued professional development. Being based in Australia, it's so convenient for me just to download the podcast and listen at a time convenient to me. I also really enjoy the breadth of experts and the wide range of opinions, which helps me form my own conclusions. Dr. Dave, thanks again for providing such a valuable, insightful, and value-added service. Thank you, Claire Edwards in faraway Queensland, for your support and endorsement. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. Your regular donations really help to keep the lights on and to sustain my motivation. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my guest, Bill Connect, LCSW, for discussing his work and his book, The Accidental Therapist, sharing over a half century of experience and insights to facilitate positive outcomes. Next week, my guest will be psychoanalyst David Scharf, MD. Dr. Scharf is a senior clinician, pioneer, and innovator. He was among the first to adopt telehealth practices and will be focusing particularly on his international experience. Once again, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourself, others, and the earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.